0: Thomas Carlyle once said that the greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none. I think we all, to varying degrees, struggle with admitting our mistakes, our failings, our sin. Do you agree? We can usually come up with reasons or excuses for not owning our wrongs, can't we? Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder is going to lead the group in a study of Psalm 130, a psalm that Bill calls a song of hopeful repentance. Now, repentance is a key theme that shows up often in the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments. So pull a chair up and join Bill and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day as they walk through this psalm that gives us some important perspective on what repentance is, and what it isn't, and why it is such a fundamental part of not only our relationship with God, but our relationships with others. Psalm 130, a song of hopeful repentance on this Discover the Word podcast. And this is Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the story of the Bible. And as I said, we're gonna be in the Psalms this week with Bill and Elisa and Daniel. The two other regular members of the group, Marty Han and Rasul Berry have this episode off, but they will join us back here at the table again soon. And so during our look at this fairly short little song of hopeful repentance in Psalm 130, we're gonna talk about how to define what repentance is the kinds of experiences in life in which repentance is a factor, how humility is part of this, and why Bill calls this a song of hopeful repentance. What does hope have to do with our struggle to admit to turn away from our wrongs? Well, all that will become more clear as we work through this psalm together this week. And so let's get started with another Bible study here on Discover the Word. Are you familiar with the term deep water
1: experiences? And it has nothing to do with scuba diving.
2: Oh, no. That's exactly <laughs> where I went.
3: <laughs> I felt that pressure to act like I knew. And so I was going to say something about scuba diving or submarines or something. Yeah. But it sounds like I'm off.
1: <laughs> the term deep water experiences refers to crisis moments when you're under a lot of pressure. It's kind of the dark moments, the deep struggles, the really demanding times. So it's and metaphorical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when you feel like you're just drowning, that's mm. what makes it deep water. Okay. You feel like you're drowning in these experiences. I know you, you've just said you're not really familiar with that term, but you're familiar with the idea, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: I, I've been in that moment, and now I know what to call it. Okay. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and that, that makes total sense, too, the idea of drowning mm. or being so overwhelmed that you can't get out of it or protect yourself or something Mm
2: -hmm. Mm. scary yeah yeah Yeah, it
1: is well in our conversations this week we're going to be looking at one of the psalms which begins with the psalmist crying out to God from what seems like a deep water experience and uh, you'll recognize that pretty instantly when we read verse 1 but we're going to look at psalm 130 and just before we read verse 1 together What are some things that we do and do not know about Psalm 130?
2: Well, when I look at it, it, there's not much information about it. You know, sometimes you'll have something like a song of Moses or a song of David or, you know, that kind of thing and played to the tune of blah, blah kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you don't have a superscription you really are just kind of left without any background information. You're left without any hints as to authorship, which might give you a clue as to what they might be talking about. Here it just says one thing in the superscription. What's that?
3: That it's a song of ascent. So yeah. a collection of psalms that were particularly used for like high holy days where they would travel to Jerusalem and Bill, you would know this better than me, but I think it's like three times a year that they would travel. And as they would go up, they would be singing these songs that commemorate their relationship with God and what he's done for them. And I always get just kind of this picture of like more and more people joining the song as they get closer because more and more people have joined this throng of people going up. And so it gets louder and, probably more exciting and celebratory. And then the reason it's called an ascent is not just going into the presence of God, which it kind of symbolizes, but it's literal. They're going uphill Mm -hmm. (laughs) toward the temple in Jerusalem for those high holy days. So it's like a a song for climbing a mountain, I guess, is kind of (laughs) the collection. Which everyone
2: (laughs) needs when you're climbing a mountain. You need a song, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
3: Yeah,
1: the three... High holy days that Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem for were Passover, First Fruits, which we call Pentecost, and then Tabernacles, which is in the fall. The other two are in the spring, but Tabernacles is in the fall. So those are the ones they would come up for. Another thing we know about Psalm 130 is that it comes in Book 5 of the Mm -hmm. Psalms. So what's that symbolize, Daniel? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, so the five books of Psalms which we talked about in one of our series on how to read the Psalms that people can go back and listen to. But the five books of Psalms kind of mirror the five books of Moses with the goal of telling the story of Israel, but through these poetic writings. Hmm. And so book five celebrates the people coming out of exile and being back in the promised land, And so it celebrates that moment, but it also looks forward to when God will ultimately make all things right. I mean, there's a whole lot of hallelujahs throughout (laughs) book five, because it's not just talking about that moment in history, but also looking forward to when God ultimately makes all things right, too.
1: A couple of quick things, and then we want to look at verse one. One is that this is considered to be one of seven psalms that are called penitential psalms not because they were written from a penitentiary but because they're (laughs) psalms about repentance or penitent Mm. people and its genre reflects an individual lament the psalmist is lamenting something and we'll hear that very clearly when we get into the deep waters so let's go ahead and look at at psalm 130 uh, verse 1 Uh, lisa would you read it for us
2: sure sure Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord.
1: Okay, so you see the deep water, right? Mm -hmm. Out of the depths. And what's interesting about this is that some scholars connect this to the time of Nehemiah because it has some connections to Nehemiah's prayer of confession in Nehemiah 9, as well as some of Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah 1, 4 through 11. But I think when you hear that, out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord, there's another Old Testament character that it connects with much more tightly. Who might that be?
3: Yeah, Jonah, which yeah. I, I actually thought of that when you asked the question at the very beginning, too, of a deep water experience. <laughs> no kidding. He was, yeah. <laughs> he was the first one that came to mind yeah. in yeah. a biblical example of that. Yeah, Yeah. he's kind of a poster child of that. Isn't
1: he? <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you have Jonah praying. From the depths, not only the depths of the sea, but the depths of the belly of the great fish. I mean, if anybody would be qualified to pray, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, Mm -hmm. it would surely be Jonah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would be that guy, right? But if we look at it a little more metaphorically and less physically, what's interesting is that there are a lot of different kinds of deep water experiences. What are some of the kinds of things that could create a, a deep water out of the depths kind of prayer?
2: Well, I can sure think of many, many, many in my life. You know, I remember when we lost our grandson who just didn't survive birth, and that was such a deep, long, 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 drowning kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, everybody has some yeah. kind of tragedy in their lives, and and that's what I think of.
3: Yeah, and that's one that you don't really ever get out of the depths fully, right? Like, there's always that weight of that loss uh, or when we see a child suffer Mm -hmm. in some way or something like that. But I also Mm -hmm. think of people that uh, financially get Mm -hmm. in way over their heads Mm -hmm. because of either decisions they've made or because of circumstances that were completely outside of their control. Mm -hmm. And sometimes maybe a mix of both. In fact, people use that phrase often over my head Mm -hmm. with finances. Mm
2: -hmm. I also think of addiction, you know, as we're describing this When Mm -hmm. some kind of substance or relationship or situation takes charge of Mm us, we feel very submerged and, you know, we need to be
3: rescued. Yeah. And one more thing, too, that comes to mind, and this one's more like we've talked about really weighty things, um, but there's another, like, I would say it's a positive life experience, but where we feel in over our heads, which is like even just like raising kids (sighs) or things like that 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 are supposed to be easier Mm -hmm then or they're touted then,
2: to be easier. I don't know that they're supposed to yeah, be, but yeah. I was going to say yeah. So, yeah, so. That's right. Yeah. <laughs>
3: exactly. Um and yeah. that's the point, right? Is yeah. like that's a, supposedly a positive experience of mm-hmm. having kids and raising kids, mm-hmm. but oftentimes as parents we feel in way over our heads.
2: And sometimes yeah. in leadership, you know, I mean yeah. we could kind of go yeah. on and on here. We're handed challenges uh to you know to reconcile relationships, to lead an organization forward, and we're just like I don't have enough in me to do this.
1: Yeah. The kinds of things we're talking about kind of fall into two categories. One category, like you described, Elisa, with the loss of your grandchild, is something that comes to us in our lives that we didn't ask for. We didn't do anything to invite it or provoke it. It happened to us through, in a sense, no fault of our own, right? But Daniel, when you're talking about being in over our heads in debt, I mean, Marlene and I experienced that, and a significant part of that drowning in debt experience that we had, was because of poor choices we had made. Yeah, We were reaping the consequences of some bad decisions on a couple of major purchases that we had made that didn't work out well for us. So when you look at it, some of the deep water experience come upon us because of the fact we live in a broken world and life stinks
2: mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm.
1: Sometimes it's because of wrong or even sinful choices that we make. And what we're going to find out is that even though the psalmist doesn't tell us what has created the deep water experiences that they are in, We're gonna find out that the psalmist absolutely feels responsible that they're in this situation. So it kind of falls into that second category. Psalm 130 is not a very long psalm, it's only eight verses. So why don't we read it around as we close this first conversation. And Daniel, if you'd read one through three, and Elisa four through six, and then I'll finish with seven and eight. And as we listen, listen for the psalmist owning the problem, Hmm. okay?
3: All right, so Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand?
2: But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning.
1: O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Is there a difference between hearing and listening?
3: what'd you say Bill <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, I think the do. proper yeah. response is uh-huh.
2: <laughs> okay that goes straight to conversations I've had with my husband and I hope he isn't listening right now but it, it's the kind of thing where I'm going did you hear what I said I'll say that and he'll repeat it back verbatim <laughs> so he heard the words but he didn't get the meaning <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he'll yeah. go oh I'm listening that's you know, not I mean, really see, listening though,
4: yeah
3: yeah I think we maybe flip that depending on how we've grown up or how we've heard the phrase, because I've heard it the other way,
4: oh. which is,
3: are you listening to me? Yeah. Yeah, but did you hear me? Oh. And so anyway, so yeah. it's kind of playing on those words okay. in the same way. Uh-huh. But it, the idea behind that is uh-huh. we can hear words, but did we actually let the meaning of those words penetrate yeah. into our hearts or minds or whatever yeah, right. to acknowledge yeah. when my mom said, don't do this or do this don't go out after eight
2: o'clock daniel (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: Yeah. it's interesting peter drucker whose name is very familiar in leadership circles and so forth said the most important thing in communication is hearing what isn't said Mm. Hmm. and that kind of goes to what you were talking about elisa when when maybe evan can recite the words but not with the same emotion that you had said them um, <laughs> there you know there's also hearing body language exactly mm-hmm. uh, all those different things there's a lot involved in hearing and listening and whichever one you put the emphasis on i think you make a good point daniel because i've heard it both ways well you heard me but you weren't really listening mm-hmm. and i want us to think about in a in a time when we really value being heard, whether it's by our spouses or by colleagues in ministry or whoever it might be, when we really value being heard, what does it mean to be heard by God? Mm. Hmm. I mean, really heard, deep down heard. So we go back to Psalm 130, and Daniel, if you would read
3: verse 1, and then Elisa, if you would pick up verse 2. Sure. So this is Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord.
2: Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications.
1: Okay, so what we know in Hebrew poetry is when an idea is repeated, it's to give emphasis. So he says, hear my voice, and then he repeats it with further detail. Not just hear, be attentive Mm. to the voice of my supplications. Yeah, in the Um,
2: NIV it says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy.
1: Oh, okay. Mm. And from somebody calling from out of the depths, as verse one said, Mm -hmm. that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It does.
3: Mm -hmm. And as someone who's raised boys, uh, I think a modern version of this would be, Lord, hear my voice. Look at me in the eyes, so I know you're listening to me or something. (laughs) But this idea of like that extra attentiveness Mm -hmm. or extra Mm -hmm. attention to what's Mm -hmm. being said.
2: Read my lips.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and again,
1: how many times have any of us prayed, and we felt like, as the old proverbial saying goes, my prayers didn't go past the ceiling of the room mm-hmm. I was in. They just kind of bounced back and hit me on top of the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just felt like God wasn't listening.
4: Yeah,
2: I, I can't help but flip to the other podcast that I'm a part of called God Hears Her, Because we spend a lot of time talking about how God hears us differently from Mm -hmm. others and what does it Mm -hmm. mean to be heard by God. And what we do with it is really a concentration on being known by God, being loved by God, being understood by God.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's part of being heard. I mean, Mm -hmm. part of being heard is being understood Mm -hmm. and to have our thinking valued And that's part of what we mean by being heard. Now, what's really interesting is in our first conversation, we talked a little bit about the positioning of Psalm 130 in the songs of ascent and so forth. One commentary said that Psalm 130 is the middle psalm of a triad of psalms Mm -hmm. about righteousness, which we've talked about many times before. Righteousness is right relationship with God. And so these are psalms about right relationship with God. So Psalm 129 is the first of the triad. And in Psalm 129, they give thanks to the righteous Lord because Israel has been saved and their enemies are handed over to God. But... In Psalm 130, the one we're looking at, the righteousness of God that's a comfort, in 129 kind of becomes a little threatening when we're the ones who are out of line because God is a righteous God. Hmm. And then in 131, we see hope and restoration and relationship again. Uh, It's really interesting to read those three Psalms together and see the movement Hmm. between them. And with... Our Psalm 130 being right in the middle of those psalms, it really positions us in that place of, okay, we as human beings are unrighteous people who have been allowed to have right relationship with a righteous God because of what Jesus did
3: for us, Hmm. right? Hmm. Yeah, and I wonder too, Bill, so this being a song of ascent and they're on their way to Jerusalem, to the temple... I wonder if they maybe have a tendency like we do today of thinking that maybe God will hear me a little better once I get to the temple or once I get to, you know, this high holy day and almost emphasizing this idea of God's presence being more real or something like that in that place when part of the invitation of this psalm, and then really the psalms in general, is that God meets us where we are. And I just, for some reason, that theme also is kind of jumping out to me of how I have this tendency sometimes to think I need to be in the right setting or the right place for God to hear me. And I wonder if maybe they struggled with that a little bit too. Yeah, I
1: think that makes a lot of sense, Daniel. And I kind of compare it to they're going up to Jerusalem, they're going up to the place of worship, they're going up for the high holy day and for the feast, and there's maybe a little bit of a desire to take care of some spiritual business before they get there. (laughs) That's what I
2: was really hearing in in the progression that you described of 129 to 131. Uh, So Daniel, great point about maybe God's going to hear me closer there, but on the way, I need to get right. I need to clean up. It's like anybody who's, who's got a big day, you know, and a big something happening, you just kind of want to spend a little extra time <laughs> focusing in on yeah. God. We always pray before we begin these conversations. Yeah. It just reminds me of that.
1: Yeah. And I tell you what it reminds me of is in 1 Corinthians 11, when we come to the Lord's table, mm-hmm. and there's a warning about how we participate in oh, that yeah. table. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that we could think about Jesus said, if you come to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go make things right with your brother, then come back and offer your offering. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a sense in which there is a need to take care of some spiritual business in order for us to be able to really commune with God in the way that we need to. And I would suggest the way he desires for us to. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense?
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And and I guess the caution there always is, Really, our responsibility has more to do with a recognition of yeah. what's going on because we can't really do anything about it ourselves.
2: Yeah, we can't make ourselves righteous, yeah. but there is a um, a humility and therefore a receptivity that happens when we recognize as you, said mm-hmm. Daniel our dependency on Him. And when we recognize that, we are more able to receive. Yeah,
3: and I think the psalm builds to that, and Mm -hmm. I know we'll probably get to this, but in the middle of the psalm is waiting on the Lord and putting our trust in Him. So it's at this point in the psalm, it's this recognition that all is not right Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. me or within my relationships with others, and looking to the Lord is the only one that we can look to to help us with that,
1: I'm well versed in my own failures, in my own shortcomings, in my own sinful tendencies. I know all of those things. And that's why one of the verses in the New Testament that gives me great comfort is 1 John 1, 9. Mm -hmm. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You're right, Daniel. There's nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves, but if we confess to Him, He will take care of making us restored in relationship with Him. That's the cleansing part that He does. Elisa, you talked about having a spirit of humility and acknowledging our wrong. That's the word confess. It means to say the same thing about. Mm-hmm. It means to agree with God that what we've done is not wise. It's not best. It's not what he would have for us. So we come to him for cleansing and restoration in his presence.
0: Yeah, Talking about repentance in this edition of the podcast in a way that I think will help us embrace repentance as a spiritual discipline by thinking about it in a fresh way. Good to have you here with us on Discover the Word for our series exploring Psalm 130, a passage we're calling A Song of Hopeful Repentance. This study will continue after we take a break to remind you of an important project that we're asking the Discover the Word family to help with. When you go online to the discovertheword.org website right now, you're going to notice that we're in the middle of a campaign to raise funds to support an Our Daily Bread Ministries original video production called The Holy Land. Now, a few weeks ago, our Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck, was here with us on Discover the Word, and he gave a preview of some places that he'll be taking us in the fourth season of this video series. Uh, But of course, Jack doesn't do this alone, and so today I'd like to introduce you to the director of this film series from Our Daily Bread, uh, John Boggs. John, you're the director, and so what does that mean? That's a large question. Uh I think, what does it mean to be a ringmaster? There's a lot
4: of different people that go into making a film. Um, A lot of different creative voices, a lot of different logistical things. I help to kind of oversee all that stuff. And I think my primary role is to make sure that the right people are in the right places. You're kind of chiseling out the puzzle pieces from a block of wood, and then later on you're assembling them. And that's kind of my primary job, and I'm blessed to do it.
0: And, John, I've heard you say that being involved with Jack on this Holy Land project has changed you. I've been in a vocational ministry pretty much my entire professional life.
4: And I've been studying the Word along with that pretty much my entire life. And we all go through stages where, you know, the Bible becomes a little dry, a little stale. And I just think that's part of living on this side of, of heaven. We have to walk through that. And I would say that the Holy Land has transformed that. The Word has become fresh again. And, like, it just has made it come alive for me. And I I hope and pray that it does for anybody that watches it. I mean, it's the reason why I come to work. It's the reason why I am so plugged into the idea of (laughs) helping people understand the word better. So I think if that encompasses everything that I have experienced with Holy Land, it's going to be one of the most thrilling pieces that I'll ever be involved with in my life.
0: John Boggs, director of The Holy Land with... Dr. Jack Beck from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And right now, we here at Discover the Word are partnering with the film team to raise a portion of the needed funds to make season four happen. Later this fall, Jack along with Boggs and the crew will head over to film the material for season four. But we need your help. Inflation has made it so much more expensive and so would you partner with us in helping us fund this life-shaping project? you can give when you go to our discovertheword.org website and click donate. 100% of the donations on the site right now through the end of June will go toward this project. And if you'd like to hear my entire conversation with John Boggs about the Holy Land, uh, we'll tack it on the end of this podcast version of the show. An interesting guy with an interesting story. And so make sure you keep listening even after our study of Psalm 130 is complete. Now back to this song of hopeful repentance,
1: Bill. It seems to me, and I want to hear if you two agree with me, it seems to me that repentance is a subject we don't hear very much about today.
2: Unless you're walking by some dude on a street corner with a sign. Yeah. And a (laughs) bullhorn.
3: Or perhaps if you're part of more of a liturgical church where the idea of confession and repentance is a weekly thing. At church, Because mm-hmm. there are some churches where that's built into like the every week service. That's true. Okay. But I think in general, what you're pushing on is the idea of outside of that, especially, it tends to be a more unfavorable thing uh, yeah. to write about.
1: Yeah. And yeah. to your point, Elisa, about the sandwich board sign, that was my first exposure that I ever remembered to the word repent. And it was in cartoons when I was a kid. You'd see this dude out on the street corner just looking all disheveled and his sign says, repent, the end is near, you know, and it was all just a caricature of faith.
2: And, you know, it's interesting. It's now that you're describing it that way, it's a caricature of John the Baptist. Because he was kind of crazy looking, (laughs) as as scripture (laughs) describes him, hairy and, you know, clothed in certain animal skins and eating locusts and saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes, too, just the negative perception of that word Mm -hmm. is justified because oftentimes it comes with. Unfair judgment, judgment of others mm-hmm. or looking mm-hmm. at someone and making so many assumptions about who they are or what mistakes they've made or the type of things they think about or something like that. We, we just have so many things that we take. Well, my perspective is the one that matters so-and-so disagrees with me. They're wrong. They need to repent. And so, you know, sometimes it just gets so tied into those types of things, too, that it makes it really hard to think about it in a positive way.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. In the 90s and the early 2000s, I traveled a lot to Russia to teach pastors in a training school over there. And on Sundays, we would go to church services, and usually I'd end up preaching. But I remember there was one where I wasn't preaching. I was just sitting in the back with my interpreter telling me everything that was going on. And the pastor preached a message and then he gave an altar call. And this young man came forward and the pastor grabbed the microphone and looked him in the eye and said, why have you come forward? He said, I want to repent. And the the pastor put the microphone in his face and said, okay, repent. Mm -hmm. And the guy just started confessing a lot of Sin, some of a pretty gnarly stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I learned when I was in Russia is over here in the States, we have a certain nomenclature for conversion. We talk about, well, this was when I got saved, or this is when mm-hmm. I trusted the Lord, or this is when I came to faith. Over there, they say, this is when I repented. Wow. Hmm. It's that big
3: of a deal that over It makes it much
2: more holy, doesn't it? More like you described Daniel in a liturgical setting. That's their yeah. everyday sense of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So so, so, are we going to take the next 10 minutes for us just to go around the circle? <laughs> you go first. And I'll well, share. we yeah. were going
1: to give you the 10 <laughs> minutes, Daniel, and Elise and I were going to sit and gloat about how self-righteous yeah. <laughs> we were. We
2: were going to judge. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's interesting. I, I came across a quote, which is really good, is by a woman who used to be a an English professor at Syracuse University, and she came to Christ, and she's written several books. Her name is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Mm. And listen to what she said. She said, one very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. (laughs) My sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. Mm. My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory.
2: That is so good, Bill. Isn't that good? My heart is an idle factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Wow.
1: And the good news in response to that is Billy Graham said, the wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy, and he responds to repentance. And Mm -hmm. we started off by talking about the fact that Maybe one of the reasons repentance doesn't get talked about is because it's usually cast in a negative way. And yet in Romans 2, Paul writes that it's God's kindness that
3: leads us to repentance. I'm always surprised mm-hmm. when I read that mm-hmm. verse. Because mm-hmm. typically when other people are calling us to repent, it's not in a kind no. way. No.
1: And normally, I think we tend to associate repentance with an avoidance of judgment, yeah. Uh, well, I'm repenting so that God doesn't squash me like a bug. You know, No, that's not it. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance because he wants us to be able to walk in relationship with him. And in Psalm 130, we're going to find that the psalmist, while talking about repentance and forgiveness of sins, actually links repentance, not to judgment, but to hope. Mm-hmm. And that really feels unusual to me. So... Let's go again, and Daniel, if you would read verses one and two of Psalm 130, and then Elisa, if you would pick up with verses three and four.
2: Okay.
3: Sure. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications.
2: If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared.
1: Hmm. Okay, so... The key here may be the word mark, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, because that word mark means keep a record.
3: Mm. Yeah.
2: That's exactly how the NIV translates it. If you keep a record of my sins.
1: Yeah. And what's interesting is that in 1 Corinthians 13, in the hymn of love, it says, love does not keep a record of sin. Mm. And that reminds us that God is a God of love, he's a God of forgiveness. And again, as we saw in our last conversation, if we confess our sins, if we go to him and in repentance and confession, acknowledging our wrongdoing, he will forgive us Mm. and cleanse us because that's his heart of love for his child.
3: You know, Bill, you said earlier how surprising it is to think of God's kindness as what leads us to repentance, and it is for me too. It's always surprising when I stumble on that verse. It feels unbelievable in some ways, but I think the same thing is surprising here, Mm -hmm. because typically when people talk about God, they talk about him as if he's someone who has a journal that has you know my name on it, and everything I ever do that's wrong, he's marking it down, he's Mm -hmm. making a list. He's checking it twice. (laughs) He's going to find out if I'm naughty or nice. Right? Like we give him Santa credentials, right? Where it's like God's up there just keeping track of everything, almost as if God wants to punish, he wants to hurt, he wants to harm, he wants to discipline, he wants Mm -hmm. to catch us Mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. And what's surprising here in this verse is the idea that it implies the opposite, that it's like, no, the Lord's heart has nothing to do with marking iniquities. Instead, it's about what you're saying, this repentance that brings hope, that Mm -hmm. brings a freedom, that brings Mm -hmm. a relief of pressure, a removal of shame, a removal of fear.
2: And, you know, it's one thing to talk about that, you know, that it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance, but it's a whole nother thing to experience that. You know, when I repent and I experience the counterintuitive kindness of God, the forgiveness of God, Mm -hmm. do you think it (laughs) makes it easier to confess, easier to own?
1: Because you know you're going to be welcomed in the presence of your father. Still loved, if anybody had the right to keep a record, it would be God. Mm-hmm. But the one who has the right to keep a record doesn't keep a record. So what does that say about us when we keep oh. a record of other people's
3: Ooh, failings I felt and shortcomings? That, I felt that conviction as soon as you said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, though. If the only one who could keep a record is not keeping a record, then who am I to hold grudges. things against those yeah. around me or hold grudges or resent others or whatever? Mm-hmm. And, you know, now— It's okay to go through the process of resenting and then bringing that to the Lord, bringing that to someone and seeking reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But... The idea of us keeping a list of others' wrongs even after maybe there's been forgiveness and mm-hmm. walking through that together. Mm-hmm. Oof, yeah. I feel that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's awful easy to to be list makers. Yeah. What we tend to do is we tend to make lists of the ways people hurt us and ignore the ways that maybe they've been kind to us or mm-hmm. shown us grace or patience or understanding or something. We tend to focus on the negative stuff and mm-hmm. God doesn't keep a list even though yeah. he's one that has the right to.
3: Now, Bill, one thing that's kind of interesting to me is in verse four, this tie between God's forgiveness that he may be feared. Mm-hmm. 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 And that feels weird. Well, first of all, it feels backwards because it yeah. feels like because of being afraid of him, we should want to repent. But it's the opposite here. It's like we experience yeah. his forgiveness, so he should be feared. As you've been studying this and working on this, like what's kind of come to mind for you? Help us unpack that.
1: Well, again, we always kind of try to gather together the idea that words have shades of meaning, and mm-hmm. um, there aren't very many static words that only mean one thing, and they mean that one thing all the time. Fear is one of those words that has different shades of meaning, and sometimes it means to be afraid of, to be terrified mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Most of the time when the word fear is applied to God, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it speaks of having a, a spirit of awe and wonder mm-hmm. and, and reverence and worship toward God. And if you put it in that context, there's forgiveness with God. Why? So that we can be brought into a, a relationship of worship for him.
2: Well, it's exactly what, Daniel, you were referencing. You know, it, it's so counterintuitive. And, but when you think that the Holy One who has the right to make a list doesn't make a list, that then is so stunning, mm. I think, maybe that then we stand back in awe of Him, you know, that He is forgiving yeah. in that way.
1: Yeah, and when you look at this idea of the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord means reverence and relationship, so that we don't have to cringe in his presence like we're afraid he's going to smack us down. Mm. We don't have to fear that from him because with him there's forgiveness and he doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. So when we put those two ideas, he doesn't keep a record and he does forgive, then we're able to be in that right relationship with him that we started talking about some in a previous conversation and what we call righteousness.
3: Yeah, that's really helpful. It's like a, a wow moment of bringing our sin before God mm-hmm. and finding out that not only is he not writing down all the mistakes we made, but he's offering forgiveness as his default, uh, yeah. his mm-hmm. kindness that mm-hmm. leads to repentance. Mm-hmm. That would bring a more wow or awe or worship
0: before God.
1: Because it's so unexpected.
0: Yeah. Like Daniel said that's a wow moment to end that part of our conversation when we confess God is ready to forgive that's his default we repent he forgives well so glad you joined us on the discover the word podcast to study with us your study partners are Bill Crowder Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day and in this episode the team is exploring Psalm 130 a song of hopeful repentance well no one likes waiting but you've got to admit that some things are worth waiting for. In Psalm 130, the author reveals who and what is worth the wait. And so let's listen as Bill and Elise and Daniel move on to verses 5 and 6 of the psalm, where this idea of waiting and waiting on the Lord comes in.
1: When are some times that you have found waiting to be hard? Oh, it's,
3: it's easy. I love waiting. It's like one of my favorite (laughs) things in the world. (laughs) No, I, a part of my role with our daily bread is leading reclaim today, where we basically create content for millennials and Gen Z. And one of the things that we joke around with, because we're also in that audience is, all right, here's the worst case scenario. You get somewhere before your friends do and your phone's dead, and all you can do is just sit there and wait for them to show up. (laughs) And I wish I could say that's all about other people experiencing Mm -hmm. that waiting, but Mm -hmm. man, I struggle with that too.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm just thinking of recent moments like um, my husband and I were waiting to get a text as to whether or not our grandson made the college baseball team. You know, and you've got a whole bunch of elements there that you can't control. A, he's 18 and he'll text in his own time. (laughs) B, if you text him, he will not respond. (laughs) C, he's waiting on the coach. I mean, it's just like. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, waiting comes in layers and sometimes it comes in waves and sometimes it feels like it's never going to end. To me, the worst kind of waiting, and this is very trivial, I understand that, but. I hate being stuck on a highway in the middle of a construction zone where the traffic has just stopped. Um, When you're sitting back there waiting and you have no information, you don't know anything that's going on, it can be very, very frustrating. And this is the next place the psalmist wants to take us as he's talking about (laughs) repentance and hope and God not keeping a record of our sins and all these things. He wants to take us to this idea of waiting, but he's gonna frame it a little differently than we normally think of it, I believe. So let's do this. Let's, for today, I'll read verses one and two. Daniel, if you'll read verses three and four, and then Elise, if you'll catch five and six, and that's where we'll land for the day. Okay. Psalm 130, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications.
3: If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities... Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered.
2: I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed, more than the watchman for the morning.
1: Now, the thing that strikes me as I look at that is that we were talking about how frustrating and disappointing and even upsetting waiting can be, but he connects waiting with hope. (laughs) <laughs> and I would suggest, at least in my case, I don't do that very often. <laughs> but
2: that's the way it works, though, isn't it? You, you, that's a great pull out there, Bill. We don't typically go to Hope, but that's how you get through yeah. it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, especially when you're in situations where you're not stuck in traffic. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're in a, a real-life situation where you're waiting for a diagnosis or you're waiting for the results of a job interview or when you're waiting for to see if a relationship is gonna work or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're in those kind of things, those really serious kind of deep water things that we've been talking mm-hmm. about in these conversations, we don't always go straight to hope. We mm-hmm. tend to, mm-hmm. to think, okay, God's forgotten about me again and I'm stuck here and there's nothing I can do and if God really loved me, he would make this thing happen
3: now. Yeah. <laughs> And I wonder if part of that's because even in the situations that we've shared or in the context of this Psalm where he's talking about running into those ugly places in his heart and mind and asking God to do something about it, in all of those situations, we have no control,
1: Yeah.
3: right? We want control and we try to work on all the things that we think we do have control over, but in reality for so many things in life, especially related to our brokenness and our blind spots and things like that, we don't have control. And so ultimately all we have left to do is wait for the Lord because the Lord is the only one in which we could have hope oh, in yeah. any of those circumstances. Yeah. A couple
1: of things that I want us to think about. First of all, think about the imagery more than the watchman for the morning, indeed yeah. more than the watchman for the morning. What, what do you think's going on with that?
2: Well, I go straight to how I used to be when I would work the 11 to 7 shift, admitting people in the emergency room at the hospital, Oof. and I just could not wait <laughs> to,
1: yeah, to get
2: right. off so I could go home and sleep, you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and for the watchman, I mean, I'm sure that there was some of that because it was pulling night uh-huh. duty, like you said, Elisa. Uh-huh. It's the graveyard yeah. shift. But also for them, the watchmen were there to be on the lookout for danger and trouble and attack upon the city. And so when daylight came, all of a sudden it's like, okay, we made it through another Ah, night. There's a sense of relief, Mm -hmm. not just, okay,
3: I get to go to bed, but hey, we made it through another night without being attacked.
1: This is a good thing. Yeah, because
3: there's an extra vulnerability Mm -hmm. at night, especially, you know, I'm reminded of those times when we go camping and all of a sudden we think an animal is getting ready to jump out to us from the shadows. And then we wake up the next day and realize it's a tree stump, you know, yeah. like, it, like even there's this extra fear that we carry in the dark yeah. with us. And it's the most vulnerable time for these city States. And so the watchmen are literally, they have no idea if someone's going to attack, it's probably going to be at night, you know, as a surprise attack. Yeah. And so just that extra fear that they carry with them, it's a very different shift than those who are working during the day, watching the walls where they don't have that element of fear and darkness.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. The Targum, which is uh, an ancient Hebrew commentary on the old Testament, Mm. they understood the watchman, not to speak of the watchman on the wall, but of the Levitical guards who were longing for the offering of the morning sacrifices. Hmm. They were filled with anticipation for a moment of worship that was going to come once the sun came up. And that's a very different thing, but I think whether it's Hmm. watching for danger like the guards or watching for the sacrifices, their point is that they're waiting for the morning because in the morning, To your point, Daniel, uncertainty goes away and everything becomes more clear Mm, in the light of day. So the other thing I wanted us to think about is back in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, in his word do I hope. Now, what do you think that word is that he's talking
3: about there? Mm. Well, it's tricky because when this psalm was written and when these psalms were collected, the scriptures as we think of them today definitely were not there yet the new testament didn't exist there wasn't a complete collection of the old mm-hmm. testament yet it can't mean what we typically use the word to mean which is to say the bible right
2: yeah but I mean, yeah, yeah it's really helpful historically and yet you look at psalm 119 that has a zillion references to various <laughs> understandings of the word And so something is sacred, thy word is Mm -hmm. a lamp unto my feet, etc. So take us through it, Bill. What do you want to answer there?
1: Well, I think that, you know, in looking at a bunch of commentaries on this, you know, I always try to get help from people smarter than me, of which there is a huge number. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea that kept coming up was that this was not a reference to the Bible per se, like you're saying, Daniel, but it was more like there was an oracle or a promise of rescue. Mm -hmm. There was a promise of rescue, just as God had promised He would rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. There was this anticipated time when God was gonna keep His promise, His word of rescue from whatever situation the psalmist finds himself in. And at this point, that's why his soul waits and he has attached his hope to God's promise. And even though he's doing that in an Old Testament context, probably with only the Pentateuch, the first Mm -hmm. five books of the Old Testament, as the only scriptures he might even have access to, that feels very familiar to me because Christ has made a promise to us that one day he's going to return. And Paul even talked about the fact that this is God's great hope that he has given to us that he will one day keep his promise and rescue us from the brokenness that we live in now.
3: And I really like that idea of of the word promise kind of sliding in there. Mm -hmm. And in his Mm -hmm. promise, do I hope, because even in the context of this psalm, what is the promise? The promise, well, first of all, as we talked about last time, is forgiveness, Mm -hmm. that we serve a God who doesn't mark our iniquities or keep track of all of our wrongs, but instead offers forgiveness to those that look to him. But then this is a God of steadfast or loyal hope and love. So the hope or the promise that really ties the whole Bible together is... That idea of the word of God. What is the word of God? It's the message of hope that God brings into the world. Uh, And that really ties Genesis together all the way with Revelation, which definitely didn't exist when this psalm was written. So, (laughs) right, so that idea of word, I love that idea of it being Mm -hmm. promise, uh, this promise of hope, this promise of forgiveness, this promise of God's love.
1: And I think, Daniel, to underline what you're saying there, he says he is. Hoping in the promise, whatever that promise was. But notice specifically, he says in verse five and six, I wait for the Lord. Lord, yeah. My favorite commentator on the Psalms is a guy named Derek Kidner. I just think he does matchless work with the Psalms. And he wrote, It is the Lord Himself not escape that the psalmist longs for. Mm. Notice that this is more than wistfulness or optimism. Mm. In plain terms, he speaks of a promise, the word, to cling to, and in picturing the watchman, he chooses as his simile a hope that will not fail. Night may seem endless, but morning is certain, Mm. and it's time determined. As another psalm says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning
0: discovering that there is hope written into this key idea of repentance all throughout the Scriptures. And in Psalm 130, this song of hopeful repentance, the psalmist encourages us to wait on the Lord. Well, in the final segment of the study, we're going to discover an interpretive key that we can use to help us understand really all of Scripture. Daniel Ryan
3: Day. The idea of a key being you turn a key and a lock and it unlocks the door and you can open the door. So an interpretive key is like a core idea that when we use that core idea to look at a passage, it helps us understand in some way. And
0: so what is that interpretive key, that core idea that can help us understand why this psalm is a song of hopeful repentance? Don't normally put those two ideas together. Well, that's what we'll discover as we wrap up another episode of the Discover the Word podcast. Right after, take just a moment to preview where the group goes for our next study together. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Elisa will be leading Bill and Daniel and Rasool Berry into a study of secret things. You start wondering, does God use secrecy or
2: mystery or hiddenness to confuse us? And, you know, the Bible uses the word secret to describe both positive and negative kind of aspects of our relationship with God, like secret sins and then secret service and secret places, you know, and I want us to go into that use of secrets in scripture and pull it apart a little bit and see what we might be able to learn about Mm -hmm. secrets.
0: Yeah, it's going to be another interesting study as we explore how understanding this idea of secrets can expand our understanding of when secrets are, as Elisa said, positive and good, and when they're a negative in our relationships with God and others. So be here for that conversation called Secret Things next time on the Discover the Word podcast. And now, the conclusion of our study of Psalm 130, this song of hopeful repentance.
1: I think it's fairly straightforward to say that hope is a little bit of an amorphous concept. It's kind of hard to get our arms around it sometimes, isn't it? Mm -hmm.
3: It's kind of a Mm -hmm. big
1: word there. Uh, Amorphous. Amorphous. Yeah, yeah. I was studying my thesaurus this
3: morning.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's
3: right. <laughs> um, now
2: he's got to spell it.
3: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So the idea of amorphous is that it's uh, hard to grasp or yeah. kind of changes as we think we grasp it. Maybe it changes and morphs into something it's else like or something It's like without
2: shape. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's
3: mm-hmm. intangible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One writer, Bernard Williams says, there was never a night or a problem that could defeat sunrise or hope. Hmm. That fits right in with our our Psalm 130, with the watchman waiting for the morning. There's never a night that could defeat sunrise or a problem that could defeat hope.
2: And it's interesting that in that quote, you have something very concrete. I mean, on our phones, we can go to the weather and see exactly what time sunrise will be. But (laughs) hope is amorphous. You know, hope is really difficult to pin down.
1: And uh, that may be why the great, Green Bay Packer coach of years gone by, Vince Lombardi, said, hope is not a strategy. (laughs) (laughs) And in football, you know, you can't hope. You got to work and you got to drill and you got to practice and you got to train. You got to do all those things. I kind of prefer what uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu said. He said, hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Mm -hmm. I think that's helpful. And, And as we land these conversations on Psalm 130, just to get back into the discussion.
3: What are some things we've seen in Psalm 130 so far? Mm. We've seen hope tied to waiting on -hmm. the Lord, because Mm -hmm. oftentimes things are outside of our control, most of the time, maybe all the time, (laughs) (laughs) and He's the only one that we can look to because Mm -hmm. of that. And
2: the whole psalm is set in the depths, you know, in, in those things that are over our heads we talked about that mm -hmm. um and you know daniel that the whole thing about control is we've been talking i've been thinking control is really Mm -hmm. such an illusion you know Mm -hmm. we have control over nothing (laughs) right we think we do and we construct our lives so that we continue the mythology that we're in control But the reality is, it's more like James, you know, you say you're going to go into this city and that city on a given day, you should say, if the Lord wills, you know, we are Mm -hmm. not in charge. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And that's one of the most difficult life lessons for us to learn, not just to learn the lesson of relinquishing control, but of accepting our lack of control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to have a God who is in control even when life feels out of control. Yeah. And that's the God that the psalmist has been praying to as we've been reading Psalm 130. And just for this part of our conversation, Elisa, would you read verses seven and eight and hear how the psalmist wraps up this song that we've been talking about?
2: Oh Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. This starts off as an individual lament and then turns into a kind of a national call to repentance and not just repentance from sin, but repentance to hope. Hmm. The word repent in the New Testament, metanoia, means a change of mind that produces a change of life. And so there's a very Hmm. real sense in which he's saying, okay, Yes, we need to repent from, but we also need to repent to. And we don't always think of it in Mm. positive terms, as we've talked about previously. But he says, Israel, hope in the Lord. And why does he say
3: that, Daniel? Because the Lord is a Lord of loving kindness. Exactly. A Lord of uh, the Hebrew word chesed where you have to, you know, clear your throat a little bit to say it, Um, but it's this faithful love. It's the way God himself introduces who he is to Moses in Exodus 34. The first time, like God's kind of introduced himself in other passages before that, but the first time God like clearly articulates, this is who I am, is he's a God of faithful, loyal, steadfast love. And that word shows up throughout the whole Mm. Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And that's really where our hope is, is that we have a faithful, loving God who created all things and is inviting all people to himself.
1: Okay, now let's connect the dots here. Elisa, you reminded us a few minutes ago that this psalm is born out of the depths of a situation in which the psalmist feels over their head, apparently because of some sinful activity or choices that they had made. And they're going to God as a God of forgiveness, a God of hope, and now a God of chesed, as you say, Mm -hmm. Daniel. I mentioned yesterday that my favorite commentator on the Psalms is Derek Kidner. I want you to hear how he kind of encapsulates all of that into one statement. Nothing could be further from the shut-in gloom and uncertainty of the depths than this. The singer is now liberated from himself to turn to his people and to hold out hopes that are far from tentative. There's no arguing with the bold inclusiveness of his closing words from all his iniquities. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Mm -hmm. That's good. Uh, It's reminding us again that this psalmist who starts off in the darkness of the depths now is in the bright light of God's loving kindness. Mm -hmm. And that whole difference is seen in the migration of repentance that has been captured throughout the length of the psalm. Does all that fit for you
3: guys? Yeah, and it reinforces the surprise that we talked about earlier where we expect a God who keeps track of all the things we do wrong. We expect a God who wants to respond to that by squashing it with His strong, mighty right hand. But instead, what we find is a God who doesn't mark down all of our iniquities, a God who responds in forgiveness, and mm. this like is just the reinforcement of all that. Why? Because it's like the answer to the why question of why would God be like that? Because he's a God who's first and foremost defined as love, loving yeah. kindness, this steadfast love, a faithful love, a faithful love meaning that... It's not a love that disappears when you make a mistake. It's a faithful love that keeps following you, even if you make a mistake. And no wonder we talked earlier about that leading to an awe, a reverent fear of God. Of course, this would lead to worship, because who else would we turn to other than a God who, when we make mistakes, pursues us with his love instead? Yeah,
1: throughout the Old Testament, there's kind of a little code phrase that pops up repeatedly, who is a God like you? And then Mm -hmm. it'll have some qualifier Mm -hmm. who is sovereign over everything. Who is a God like you who made the heavens and the earth? And always it's a rhetorical question. There's no one else like him. Mm -hmm. Of all of those who is a God like you statements, my favorite is found in the little minor prophet Micah. Who is a God like you who is a God of unchanging love? Mm -hmm. And the thing that's amazing about that statement is what that means is because God's love never changes, that means there's nothing I can do to make him love me more, and there's nothing I could do that could ever make him love me less, because his love doesn't change.
2: I'm really struck by this whole conversation on Psalm 130. You know, I, I think one of our tendencies, at least in American Christianity, is to look at the Old Testament as the mean judging God, and then we get a vision... Mm-hmm of the loving God and Jesus in the New Testament. And we have the most difficult time resolving Mm -hmm. those seemingly contrasting pictures. And every time together as a team around the table, we go into the Old Testament and discover these qualities of God, His (laughs) his loving kindness. Every time we do that, I'm Uh, this sounds bad, but I'm chastised in my heart Mm -hmm. for my crazy view of God. And, you know, I think if anybody listening, if there's anything you hear is that he's the same God, this is the same Mm -hmm. God, what we have put on him as the mean judging God is a caricature of the problem of sin, not the nature of of God.
3: That's great. And one of the things we talk about a lot is, and sometimes we even use a fancy word, the interpretive key, right? And the the idea of a key being you turn a key and a lock and it unlocks the door and you can open the door. So an interpretive key is like a core idea that when we use that core idea to look at a passage, it helps us understand in some way. And really, it feels like in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the interpretive key is God's love, his loving kindness, his loyal love. And so when we run into those passages that you're describing, Elisa, that really make us stub our toe, which first Mm -hmm. of all is okay, that it makes Mm us stub our toe. In fact, it should. In fact, some of those things, if they don't horrify us, that should horrify us (laughs) because they're very disturbing ideas. Mm -hmm. But even in those, the interpretive key somehow, some way It's God's loving, faithful kindness that's the backdrop to all of this. And sometimes when we run into those passages, all we can do is say, God, I know you're a God of love. I can't reconcile this story with your love. And so I'm going to lean into your love more at this point Mm -hmm. and just trust that at some point, maybe I'll have more context or knowledge or understanding or whatever. And when I don't at times, still just trusting that you are love.
1: That's good, Daniel. Mm -hmm. And so... When we come to these things in the Old Testament that you're talking about, Daniel, things that could trip us up, we need to see them through the lens of Jesus because that is the truest picture of the character of God that we have. Yeah. Well, thanks for participating in these conversations on <laughs> Psalm 130. I think it would be appropriate if we kind of wrapped up our discussions by just reading all the way through the psalm and listen for some of those things that we've talked about throughout the the entire series and, and see how they resonate now that we've got the whole thing a little bit more in context. Daniel, you want to start us off? Yeah,
3: so Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered
2: i wait for the lord my soul does wait and in his word do i hope my soul waits for the lord more than the watchman for the morning indeed more than the watchman for the morning
1: o israel hope in the lord for with the lord there is loving kindness and with him is abundant redemption and he will redeem israel from all his iniquities
0: Psalm 130, a song of hopeful repentance. It's so good to spend quality time exploring the scriptures together, isn't it? You're listening to the Discover the Word podcast and the conclusion of our look at Psalm 130 called A Song of Hopeful Repentance. Hope these conversations have encouraged you to embrace the spiritual discipline of repentance. Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day have been your study partners for these conversations. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to Discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep listening as we drop in that full conversation that I had with John Boggs, the director of the Holy Land video project that we're asking you to consider helping financially with season four of that helpful Bible study aid that connects the land and geography with the story of the Bible. Now, we heard a couple of clips from this conversation earlier in the podcast, but here's the full conversation we had with director John Boggs. I'm here with John Boggs and uh, John tell me a little bit about your role with the Holy Land project
4: well I'm actually the director and one of the co-writers of the Holy Land I uh, worked on Holy Land season 3 and now we are in pre-production on Holy Land season 4 so it's kind of my job to kind of a creative crossing guard Um, I'm working with everybody on the project and making sure that we get a good product and that's a great job
0: what does that mean to be the director of a video film
4: type project. Oh my goodness, that's a large question. Uh I think, what does it mean to be a ringmaster? There's a lot of different people that go into making a film. Um, A lot of different creative voices, a lot of different logistical things, scheduling. Who's gonna buy the flight tickets, all that kind of stuff. How are we gonna get to a place like Israel? I help to kind of oversee all that stuff. And I think my primary role is to make sure that the right people are in the right places. Uh, And when I say that, that's not just for logistics, but also for story. We just work together. Of course, I've got a creative vision for the piece, but that creative vision relies on a lot of other people who have creative visions as well.
0: And so they pour kind of their vision into yours, then you create that. And then when you're filming, you have to make sure that what you capture is that vision that you've created with everybody else. Absolutely. And
4: yes, absolutely. That's right. Uh, I think at the end of the day I'm going to be responsible for making sure that we've kind of crossed all of our T's and you know dotted all of our I's and make sure that this makes sense as a story. Mm-hmm. And I love doing that. I, I you know All the other different things that go into making a film are fun, but that's the best part of it. You're kind of chiseling out the puzzle pieces from a block of wood and then later on you're assembling them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my primary job and I, I'm blessed to do it.
0: Okay, so this production features a guy, Jack Beck, who uh, has a pretty big vision as well for making the geography of the Bible meaningful. What kind of a guy is Jack Beck?
4: You know, it's really funny. I've worked with a lot of different people on camera and off camera, and a lot of times... When people are on camera, they tend to be somebody else. That's not a bad thing. They're playing to the camera. They are, you know, taking on a persona that's not always true to life. Jack is true to life. Jack is the consummate professor. He's always teaching. He's always taking joy and showing people a more expanded view of the word, a more profound view of the word. I went to Israel for the first time ever last year on Holy Land Season 3. And Jack would just... When the cameras weren't rolling, he was teaching me. We would walk around. He would show me a stone or he would show me a species of plant or a different type of bird. And he just wanted me to understand and feel the Holy Land. It was really amazing to see Jack just be Jack. And it's kind of asking the question, how does a fish swim? You know, Jack is always in that zone. He is always ready to teach And he has a deep passion for it, so, I mean, he is who you see on camera and off camera.
0: He's got one of those minds that he remembers everything, and then he sees something, and and they has to start talking about and tell somebody else about what he sees. Yeah, and he's really approachable in that.
4: Sometimes, you know, somebody can be really boring if they talk about the same thing over and over again. He's not, because he's like a kid in the candy store. And that kind of joy and excitement is infectious. It's a real privilege and honor to be around him.
0: Do you have any specific stories that really stick in your mind, most memorable moments with Jack Beck? (laughs)
4: Uh, I do have a very memorable moment with him. We were filming a scene at the base of Mount Hermon, and we were looking out over this huge, beautiful valley. We saw Nimrod's castle. You could see the Sea of Galilee 20, 30 miles away. Uh, A beautiful day. And I said to Jack, Jack, tell me what you're thinking about this beautiful vista. And he went to give a very professorial answer. He was acting like a professor. And I said, No, 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 Jack, what would you say if you were sitting here with your wife? And everybody else laughed because he would have said the same thing to her. You know, I'm (laughs) trying to give him direction, I'm trying to shape this epic moment, you know, in the filming. But he's like, No, he's just going to be Jack. You know, he's not going to give you some kind of canned answer. And he said, John, I would just sit here with my wife Marmy and say this is this place and this is this place and this is that place and it just made me giggle because I think it ties back to what we were just talking about Jack is Jack and you know me as the you know the director who wants to get the precise emotion and you know the precise look and feel Jack was like no I'm just gonna be me and man do I respect that yeah. it was a really teachable moment for me as a director understanding and appreciating who I was filming, the subject of my films.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how has being involved in this project with Jack and with everyone else in the crew as well, and all the different things that they bring, how has this shaped and changed you?
4: Oh, my goodness. Um, I've been in a vocational ministry pretty much my entire professional life. And I've been studying the Word along with that pretty much my entire life. And we all go through stages where you know, the Bible becomes a little dry, a little stale. And I just think that's part of living on this side of, of heaven. We have to walk through that. There's kind of like a little bit of a I gave it the office mentality. I studied the word at the office, so you know, I'm just going to go home and relax. I, I think I've I've realized that I have been missing that intimacy with the Lord. I've been missing that kind of just connecting with Him. And I would say that The Holy Land has transformed that. I think the Holy Land series, not just... When I say the Holy Land series, there's so much more that's encapsulated in that for me because I'm with it every day. I'm walking through every step of the production. And so the word has become fresh again to me because I love story. I have loved story since I was a little boy. I mean, we're talking like the age of three and four, and I grew up in the era of the original Star Wars and Indiana Jones and anything else that Spielberg and Lucas made, I would just gobble up. I was born in 78. So I love story. And it seems like a no-brainer, but every one of those stories is told in a specific location, which shapes the story. It shapes how characters move through a space. Location, location, location is sometimes everything when it comes to a story. And why wouldn't that logic work for the word of God? How would the Lord not use the land to shape and bring about his story of the gospel throughout the entire Bible? And what the Holy Land has done for me is it's made that story come to life in such an incredible way. Um, Seeing how the land shapes people's attitudes toward God, how it shapes their attitude towards worship, how it shapes their attitude towards self-reliance and also reliance on God. It's so powerful. The Holy Land just gives it a great context. I mean, Jack would tell you that everything that he's talking about is secondary. But at the same time, it's so powerful. And it just makes me appreciate so much more of the story. It just has made it come alive for me. And I hope and pray that it does for anybody that watches it. I mean, it's the reason why I come to work. It's the reason why I am so plugged into the idea of (laughs) helping people understand the word better. So I think if that encompasses everything that I have experienced with Holy Land, it's going to be one of the most thrilling pieces that I'll ever be involved with in my life.
0: And remember, if you'd like to, as a Discover the Word group member, support financially the production costs of filming Season 4 of The Holy Land, uh, just go to our discovertheword.org website and click Donate. 100% of the donations on the site right now through the end of June will be going toward this. All right, well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.